I have been conducting a scientific experiment on myself. And uh, to see how quickly it would take one of us to get to the desire to strangle you, or what? No, no. (laughs) This episode is sponsored by Rackspace. Are you looking for a place to host your latest creation? Want terrific support, high performance, all backed by the largest open source cloud? What if you could try it for free? Try out Rackspace at rubyrogues.com slash Rackspace and get a $300 credit over six months. That's $50 per month at rubyrogues.com slash Rackspace. This episode is sponsored by CodeShip.io. Don't you wish you could simply deploy your code every time your test passed? Wouldn't it be nice if it were tied into a nice continuous integration system? That's CodeShip. They run your code. If all your tests pass, they deploy your code automatically for fuss-free continuous delivery. Check them out at CodeShip.io. Continuous delivery made simple. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on Ruby developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average Ruby developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them, but if you use the Ruby Rogues link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash Ruby Rogues Podcast. Snap is a hosted CI and continuous delivery that is simple and intuitive. Snap's deployment pipelines deliver fast feedback and can push healthy builds to multiple environments automatically or on demand. Snap integrates deeply with GitHub and has great support for different languages, data stores, and testing frameworks. Snap deploys your application to cloud services like Heroku, DigitalOcean, AWS, and many more. Try Snap for free. Sign up at snapci.com slash rubyrogues. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 173 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Avdi Grimm. Hello from Pennsylvania. James Edward Gray. I can't talk that fast. David Brady. Every cloud has some silver wiring. I'm Charles Maxwood, and this week we have a special guest, Eileen Yushatel. Hi, everybody. You want to introduce yourself really quickly? Sure. I'm Eileen Yushatel. I live in upstate New York. I'm the lead developer at FishMe. FishMe provide simple solutions that help our customers educate their workforce about phishing by sending simulated spear phishing attacks. And I've learned a lot of the active record tricks from working on our massive amounts of data that we have and breaking the server. I mean, you have to retell your phishing joke here because it was just cracked me up in the talk. Okay. Everyone should know what phishing is, but if you don't, shoot me an email and I'll send you some links to click on. (laughs) (laughs) That's so great. Yeah. I have a minor objection to what FishMe does, but I guess if you have people in your company who will click those links, you need to know who they are. It just feels a little bit like we're going to see if we can trick you. Well, it's not about tricking. It's about educating. Yeah, I, I understand. I just Because your weakest link is going to be your employees. You can have all of the infrastructure you want to keep hackers out, but if somebody gets the credentials from a user through an email that they entered their username and password the internet system, it's all over. 
I love the fact that we're barely a minute into the call, and you have already said something very, very cynical about phishing and workplace security, and that is, what did you, how did you put it? Sorting through loads and loads and loads of data. <laughs> I'm guessing that's data on people who clicked on links. Not just that. Mostly, okay. yeah, though. Okay. There's Mostly data on, how to, uh, on who we sent emails to. Oh, okay, that's fair. Yeah. So it's not just who's dumb, but also... Who's who's who, not. Who's not, yeah, okay. Yeah. That's, that's, that's better. I would feel cynically vindicated if you had data on who's dumb and who's how dumb, but if you've got the big data on who's not, then it makes me feel a little bit better. Well, and they've got data on who wants cheap drugs. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, Eileen, did you get my email about the Cialis? I wanted to talk with you about that um, <laughs> for a friend. Save that for after for a friend. Yeah. <laughs> Is hey, that you who's been sending There's... me all of those uh, those scam emails on my Gmail it, account? <laughs> it depends. Was it you that emptied out my credit card this morning? <laughs> <laughs> we have a loving relationship here with our guests. That's right. That's right. I actually think the idea of gray hat and penetration testing is brilliant. I think it's absolutely genius. Although we don't do pen testing. In a way, isn't it, though? Aren't you basically doing pen testing? Well, I, okay, pen testing is an actual thing. Pen testing is human. <laughs> is, yeah, you're, that's what I mean. It's like metaphorically, you're like, you're out of medical. It is metaphorically. You're, you're pen testing, like, the, the human link in an organization. Yep. But the human link is always the strongest. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Eileen, you have all this data, massive amounts of data, and what you learned is that Active Record can or cannot handle it. It can handle it, you just have to know how to... A lot of times the things that you learn first in Active Record are maybe not the best for lots of data, so if you're using just destroy all, you're not going to want to do that on 300,000 records, because you're going to have a bad day. <laughs> well, you're going to have a long day. Yeah, especially if you have callbacks. Although, if you have callbacks, then you need the destroy all, maybe. But a lot of it was like the ways around that. So sometimes if, if you need to delete like a record, uh, 300,000 records that also have 300,000 related records, it's better to just delete those two separately with a delete all. So it deletes them all at once without having to instantiate each object and fire callbacks just to delete its associated record. Yeah, that example in your talk got pretty twisty, and I, I confess that even I wasn't aware of all the depths of it, I think, because I've just never tried it on, like, a has many through or something. And uh, that got pretty twisty, although I see that there have been some patches to try to clean that up in Rails. Yeah, it's still kind of really confusing. Every time I have to talk about it, I have to sort it back out. Especially with has many versus has many through the default dependency. Because if you don't set a dependency, it defaults to one of them, but they're different. So has many through defaults to nullify. So it just updates all of the foreign IDs to null instead of deleting them. So they're still in your database. And then, and then if it's a has many, the default is delete all. So it deletes them. So they're not, they're like not even the same. You just have to like constantly be sorting it out. I don't, and I think that's why a lot of people end up just using destroy, dependency of destroy with destroy all, because yeah. you know how that works. It ignores destroy all, ignores the dependency, which I, I don't think it used to. <laughs> I have to confess, Eileen, after watching your talk, 
I got into a situation where we had a very elaborate data structure set up. We had some, uh, for the sake of illustration, this is this was not the data model that we had, but for the sake of illustration, we had like meals, and meals had many foods in them, and each food had many, you know, nutrition amounts, you know, so basically you could take a meal and determine calories and carbs and all that stuff, right? And so you've got thousands and thousands of, in this case, we have like hundreds of thousands of records where you had this double dependency that was like a delete all on this child, but the children were going to delete all on their grandchildren. And so by deleting out like, you know, a couple hundred thousand records, you were actually deleting out like 10 million records in the database. And I walked through this with somebody and it ended up touching four or five tables. And this was after watching your talk and I'd walked my pair through, it's going to delete this, it's going to delete this, it's going to delete this. And I'm like, okay, to do this by hand and do it correctly, safely, we're going to have to write this triple left join SQL statement. So you know what? Eileen says this is a bad idea because it will take a long time. Let's just let Rails do it and let's go watch Eileen's talk while it's doing it. And we did. We, we just went in, we, we just picked the objects and said destroy. So we made exactly the call that you warned us about, but this is the beauty of it. We made it with the knowledge that you had given us, where we just walked in going, this is going to take a long time, but it's going to do it right, because it's going to do it all in an object-oriented fashion, rather than hoping that we get all the SQL gears lined up to make the one-punch delete go quickly. And I, I thought it was an interesting reversal of your talk, and I think we did it for the right reason. And it only took like an hour. So, you know, we went and worked on something else while the database was locked up. Yeah, only an hour. Yeah. <laughs> we lucked out. We lucked out. So just to maybe clarify for our listeners what the difference is in is here a little bit. Active record models have class level methods called destroy all and delete all on just the basic use case. So if you did like contact dot destroy all, you would instantiate all those contact objects and call destroy on them, which means that, you know, callbacks would be honored and dependencies would be destroyed, etc. Whereas right. if you called delete all, it would just run a delete database query that would wipe out those records. So without having to instantiate a million objects and stuff. So, you know, faster, but you don't get the callbacks and the dependency management. Right. And then the part we've been discussing a little bit is that it gets quite twisty when you're doing something like contacts.addresses.destroyall or delete all to the right. point where I think I would almost recommend not going that way. And I think that's pretty much the way Eileen mm -hmm. gave it in her talk. She showed you just use a simple, you know, where clause to scope to what you actually want and call it on that because it's safer. Yeah, and especially if you're looking for speed, but the yeah. newest version of Rails 4.2 actually fixes that. In at one point, delete all on a relationship would create an in statement that would take 130 seconds if you were deleting 10,000 records. And that's like on my machine. Everyone's machine would be a little bit different, but still, it's a long time. And that's actually fixed in Rails 4.2. So it just does a simple delete statement as if you were doing like contacts.where and doing a delete on a scope, scoped yeah. version of it. And you know, to, to clarify, James, what you said earlier, you, you mentioned that this instantiates the objects. Just if, for anybody that's not familiar, the, like the two Ruby programmers out there that haven't actually played with Rails, instantiating an active record object doesn't just mean using up the memory. It means 
reading the record in from the database. So you're talking over the wire and wasting a lot more. You're wasting a lot of time in addition to memory. I just, sorry, I'm sorry to be pedantic and nitpicky, but I, I wanted to clarify that we're not just wasting memory here. When you say destroy, you're actually beginning with a load. And yeah, you're just behind the eight ball to begin with. I actually feel like I wish destroy all was implemented as find each and then eaching over that batch and calling destroy. In fact, I find myself wishing that about most, quote, all things in Rails. Now, delete all would be an exception. When I call delete all, I expected to go to the database and handle it under the hood in one query or whatever. But I almost always find that, like, anywhere I see the use of the word all in a Rails program is probably a code smell. And that generally it should be rewritten to use find each. For, if only for the reason of not locking up the database while it's doing whatever it's going to do, you know. I don't know. What does everyone think about that? I use all, but I haven't. Most of the time there aren't enough records for it to really go and lock up for a long time. You know, it's usually one or two things that it generates over time that it, it has a lot to it. You know, and those ones, yeah, you you don't want to lock up the database on those. Yeah, a lot of my examples actually came from I built an entire year's worth of sample data for FishMe as if like a client had had an entire year's worth of sending scenarios to all of their employees. And uh, that was for our sales staff so they could actually interact with real data. And it looked real and it looked like how company's data was supposed to look like after one year, how they're supposed to go, how their trajectory is supposed to look of how many people they have failing. So I hit a lot of those problems with this because I needed to create and destroy data, like tons of data, ridiculous amounts, so much that I crashed the MySQL server on our staging machine. Awesome. <laughs> so I had to, I had to awesome. rework some of those queries. I want to just say that, like Chuck mentioned, you know, using all, but it's not usually enough records to matter. I think that's really probably the key question you should ask yourself Anytime you use all in some scenario is, okay, is this my blog? Is it only going to have the 15 categories I create or whatever? Then fine. You know, all is fine. I, there's no problem with that. But if this is anything where users will be entering in records, then I don't want to make any kind of prediction about what the upper limit on that count is. Does that make sense? Yep. Yeah, that's a lot of it is that I don't see these problems when you're running the Rails tests or when you're building your first blog because you don't have that much data. These are like the kind of problems you hit when you have an application that has been living and breathing for five years. So do you optimize prematurely or is it premature optimization if you assume that it's going to grow beyond a reasonable number to just do all on? We don't delete a lot of stats generally stay around. So we don't use delete all a lot, and it, usually when we are deleting stuff, like recipient groups or whatever, it goes to a background task. No, I guess I guess what my question is, is do you wait until you see the problem, just start out using all, and then change no, it? Actually, is it a we, painful change to make? No, usually actually we, we try to preempt it. We have find each all over our application. Okay. Is there a trade-off? It, especially since we've, in the last year, it's been a lot of like, anytime we're going to deploy something, we'd look it over really closely, especially if it's got like a CSV or it's doing anything to like something that could be a lot of records. We make sure that we're using find each and test how hard it's going to hit. So yeah, But sometimes we mess up. 
and miss it. I think I, I don't really view this particular case as premature optimization so much just because rolling a find each loop isn't like a big commitment or anything and find each is just going to fetch it in some batches by default a thousand but you can set whatever number you want, right? So Right, okay. unless you need an order. And then you can't use find each. That's true. There are cases where it makes it more difficult, but there's a lot of things. I think all is really dangerous. <laughs> like, I don't know how much people think about this. So one of the things that you see complained about a lot in Rails forums and stuff is people say, my Rails application just constantly consumes memory and grows and grows and grows and grows. And there's a lot of reasons for that, like why that can happen improper use of Ruby's closures and stuff we've talked about on the show before. But a very common reason for it is the use of dot all. So like if you need, you know, a lot of times I, I'll see Rails code out there where people need to fetch some records and maybe filter them in a complex way and they can't figure out how to write the SQL for it. So they'll say, well, I'll just pull them in and then select with Ruby, you know, uh, and filter over them or reject or whatever. But the problem with that is if you pulled 10,000 records in and, you know, all of those records had several fields and then they were instantiated into active record objects and strings are bigger in Ruby because of all the extra flags and stuff, you could really balloon the memory that your application is using. And when you're done with that request, it's not just going to go away. It's not going to get handed back to the operating system in most cases. So, you know, that's how you can balloon these memory requirements and stuff like that. Whereas, you know, using an approach like find each and then selecting over the ones you need and getting the more limited set or taking the time to figure out the SQL and using find by SQL if you absolutely have to, which I think is pretty rare. But I think there's just way better solutions that are probably better for the long-term health of your app. That's my opinion, though. I've seen cases where applications will be written to interface with Active Record, but the receiving API, for whatever reason, is expecting an array. And if you hand off, like if you just do like, you know, person.where.where.where, and you filter it down, if you hand that off, 99 times out of 100, that will work correctly if you have written your interface to be, you know, to expect something innumerable. But that one time in 100, you actually make a mistake and you actually expect an array. And so you end up either having to do dot all or dot, I'm not sure if you can do a dot 2a on an active record relation or not, but that's where I've seen it abused. And yeah, it becomes a head scratcher. And usually it's a legacy code issue. I guess I should clarify a little bit. I don't have a problem with appropriately restrictive dot where followed by a dot all. That's yeah. fine. If you're not going to get all the records, I have a problem with and think it is generally table dot all. Yeah, yeah, table dot all. Exactly. Yeah. That where you just, especially if users are entering into that table, I just that just feels a little too cavalier to me. You know, I, who knows how much data is going to be in that thing someday? You know. So we've talked a little about deleting, but Eileen, you you covered all of the CRUD actions. So how about creating? You had some cool things to say about creating. Yep. One of the things that I, I learned in that sample application I was building, I needed to put, I don't know, something like 300,000 records into the database. And it was just, it wasn't anything that was going to be customer facing. So I 
needed it to go faster than creating each record individually, so I used a batch insert. Now, I, I could have used infile, and in my example, I don't because it's not as much fun. <laughs> I love it. Because <laughs> the code is like three lines, and it's like, okay, well, that was boring. But the batch insert is a little bit more. You have to like go through each of the columns of the CSV and then align them up with the database columns and attributes and then put it into the database that way. And so it's, I would not recommend using it at all for a customer facing version because I did not need to worry about SQL injection at all. So I just was like, dump this data into the database and be awesome. And it was, it went from taking like it was something like a minute to insert all the records. But when I did it with the batch insert, it took three seconds. So it just like dumps this. Well, the example was 10,000 records, but when I was dumping like 300,000, it still takes only like 10 seconds instead of an hour, which was really great because I didn't have time to wait for each record to be inserted in the database because when you're using active record to insert records, there is no batch insert comparable in active record. So it's going to insert and then save each record, which also fires callbacks if there's any callbacks you have. So the problem with that is that it takes a lot longer because it needs to be like, okay, insert record, save record, insert record, save record, rather than batch insert is just like, here, have all of the records and don't save them, just put them into the database. Right. Yeah, that's a really good point. I've used a similar trick in the past where I was loading a whole bunch of records right in a row. And one of the reasons that can tend to be really slow on the database side is every time you pipe in a record, if you have several indexes on that table, then all those indexes need that new entry and they need recalibration, right? And if you're, if you're going to add like 10,000 records, then that's basically 10,000 recalibrations of the index, in which case one would really do, right, at the end. And um, most databases will let you do that. You can shut off the indexing for a short time, so you can do like an execute command and shut off the indexing, then throw all those records in there, and then turn the indexing back on. And when you do that, it will recalibrate itself with the data that's in the table now, and and you can um, skip a lot of the slowness on the database side. But you're right, you still face, like, you know, instantiation of the objects and stuff like that, whereas, you know, with the way you did it with batch insert, you were basically just piping data into the database, which was super cool. Yeah, it's also kind of fun to watch it go by on the on the logs. <laughs> I love how it's just you, like all of this data is just like. Bruh. I love how you optimize all your examples for fun factor. That's cool. Yeah, <laughs> and also I I, I use ten thousand records as an example because it's fast enough that you're not bored when you're t- testing, but slow enough to show a slowdown. Actual differences. Yeah. Yeah. Because this, this was actually a workshop that I did at Big Ruby first, and I couldn't do it and have been like, okay, so we're going to wait here for three minutes. Right. <laughs> Please or hold. ten minutes, or who knows how long. Let's see how long it takes. I always figured everybody would just get bored. So I did 10,000 records because it was just fast enough that you don't get too bored. It's awesome. What about reading? What are the good strategies for reading large data? Well, so we already talked about find each, which is really awesome if you have lots of records. You don't want to be doing an each on 100,000 records because it's going to instantiate each object and be slow. But you also need to realize that you can't do anything. You can use a where with a find each, but you can't use limits or order. It's going to do it 
when you say do this in, in batches, it's going to do it on ever, all the records that you have in your ware. So if you wanted to do it on like the first 10, that's just not... Well, you wouldn't do that because then you wouldn't be batching it. But if you wanted to do it on the first 1,000 and only the first 1,000, then find each does nothing for you. So it's all about like if you have lots of records and you need to do something to all of those records and not limit them or order them. It has because it it does it on the primary key. Yeah, it does the order by the primary key. And then it, it adds, yeah, the reason you can't have an order or a limit is that's what it needs to do to actually fetch them in batches. It has to impose some kind of ordering and then pick a limit and fetch that many and then fetch the next group of that many and the next group of that many, etc. Uh, another thing that you can use is pluck. And so if you needed to just output the first name of, say you have 10,000 contacts and you need all the first names for some strange reason. And you can use pluck so you get, just get that attribute. If you have a contact and you want them where they belong to a certain user and they belong to a certain country and you just want the first name of those records, it instead of collecting all of the the records and then having to active recordly go through each record and find the name on it, it will just get you just the first names. So you can just output just the first names with the, it will select the contacts based on the, the first contacts first name. So you don't have the whole record, you just have the attribute that you're looking for. So it's faster because it's returning an array of strings instead of objects. Right. And AdTubeRaker's instantiation process is kind of heavyweight because it does a lot of things, you know, like checking for things like, oh, uh, single table inheritance and stuff like that, where, you know, it can need to instantiate different objects as different types and things like that. So it's not a real light process. No, it's not. But you don't, it's the kind of thing that you don't see if you're using it on only 10 records, which is why yeah. it's kind of funny because not. None of the these problems don't come up in the Rails code base because the Rails code base tests are only doing one or two records. They're not doing, you know, performance tests. Yeah, that's a good point. So you don't like even when you add stuff, you don't you don't see those problems. You're like, oh, look at that, that's great. And you're not going to notice weird SQL statements like the for the delete back to delete because it's the most interesting. You're not going to see like the fact that it was creating an in statement that's massively long and has all the IDs for all the records you want to delete because it's only deleting one record. So you're like, ah, oh, it looks great. Done. You're actually probably not even checking your SQL statements unless you're actively working on the SQL statement in active record. I vote we switch the Rails test to use FishMe's production database. <laughs> there we go. That ought to flesh out, flesh out any issues. I yeah. already am. I sent, uh, I sent Eileen an email last week. and <laughs> She clicked it, didn't she? I've been doing updates ever since, yep. <laughs> Click all the links. <laughs> and then with update, so it's like really easy to just go through each record within each and be like, oh, update attributes and all these attributes. But if you're updating a lot of records, say you need all the contacts where they belong to this user and you need to update all of them to a different user because it's a company and one user is leaving, so they need all the contacts the other user. You could do, instead of like updating each record individually and going through and doing an each, really like content dot, uh, update attributes, user ID two, you can do update all. So it would be contacts dot update dot where, wherever you need, where user ID is one, update all to user ID is two. And then it does one single 
SQL statement that update categorizations that well update contacts set contacts user ID to two instead of doing each one individually. Yeah, so another batch method. I know there there used to be a difference too, and I can't remember if this has been changed. It's been argued about many times, but I, I know in, in previous versions of Rails, there was a method called update attributes, which you could patch a hash to, and it basically followed the, you know, you already had, when it did the update, it would honor callbacks and, and all of that kind of thing. And then uh, update attribute with no S would just take the name of one attribute and the value you wanted to set it to. And it would do like the database, almost like a, a delete all in that it would just issue the statement, but it would not run through the callback series and stuff, which, you know, was good and bad. If you used it accidentally thinking it was the same as update attributes, you may have robbed yourself of some checks and stuff that that you intended to have. But the upside of it was that if you knew what you were doing and used it correctly and you knew it was okay to skip the extra work, then it was faster, you know. Yep. So, yeah, that's also a, a good method that can be used as long as... I mean, a lot of it is just making sure you read the documentation, but that's also assuming the documentation is correct. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good point. So what are we saying in all of these cases that you have to know the various different ways to create, read, update, delete data, and you have to know what that implies about your data and how you should use it? Or what's the big takeaways here? Yeah, that's that's what a lot of it is because I mean, some of it has to come down, it comes down to you, your dependencies that you have set. And if you don't know what you're setting or don't have that memorized, you're going to have... I mean, you don't have to have it memorized, but you need to look it up each time. You need to check your, your records and make sure that you're not doing some weird stuff when you're making a big change like deleting all records or updating a bunch of records or stuff like that. And a lot of it is just paying attention to what's happening to the SQL because you don't need to know exactly what's causing it per se, but if you're looking at the SQL, you'll see the problems and it's easier to trace it back. I think it's too often we want Active Record to be the magical unicorn that just does everything for us and that's not how it works because well well it will do everything for you well it will it just sometimes it's very yeah sometimes it it does it very badly (laughs) yeah instead of a unicorn it's a bull running through your your (laughs) the magical bull (laughs) yeah and you have to you know you have to figure out how to put it back to sleep so how do you for the the people that are that are newish to rails assuming i've got a smattering of sql knowledge and i'm i'm familiar with active record how do I see the SQL? I, I want to say that I feel like that's a really basic question, but I have found some wrinkles to this answer recently that I didn't know. So this is, I'm, I'm going to throw that one out there for you. Like, like, how do you check in on your SQL to make sure it's behaving? Well, usually I will watch the logs, but a lot of times I actually will run my queries in the console before I put them in my application. Oh, okay. So are you... So then it outputs the SQL when you do that. Right. So, oh, okay. So you you go to the log and have it output the SQL. Yeah. And then yes, and then you yes. go to the console and paste it in. Okay. Yeah. Or or I will write my active record the active record way in the console and see what that the SQL output is, and then just that's like I've had seen some weird stuff just by doing that because sometimes you'll one time we actually found that there we didn't know that there was a problem until you hit something like a hundred records, and this was an older version of Rails. Where, I don't remember what it did, it didn't create an in statement, but it created something similar in the destroy all, 
or delete all or whatever, and it, it was the delete all. And it, it would do a stack level too deep if you oh. tried to run it on more than five, uh, more than 50 records or something, or more than 500 records. I can't remember the exact number. And this is not a current version of Rails. This is an old version. But that we found by running it in the console and just increasing the number of records we were deleting each time to figure out where the breakpoint was. Oh, and then we looked at the sequel and we were like, oh, that's why it's broken because it's doing so- this really weird... I think it would do... So if you were deleting contacts, categorizations, so contacts.categorizations, delete all, it would do delete from categorizations where categorizations contact ID is one or ID is two or ID is three. And because it was chaining all those ors together, it actually cra- it actually hit a stack level too deep because it couldn't continue chaining the records. Wow. Yeah. That's actually the, the first part where the idea of this talk came from was like, what other weird stuff can I find in active record that will break yeah. if you have lots of records? Yeah. I'm, I'm part of the cohort of programmers who got into Rails around the Rails 1.2. We upgraded to 2.0 and then had a healthy career in Rails 2. And only upgraded kicking and screaming to three and then now to four, you know, as, as is necessary. But there's a method that's been added to Active Record Relation in Rails 3 or Active Record 3.0 that was a surprise to me. Like somebody wrote it out and they just typed dot two underscore SQL. And I'm like, wait, what? And it turns out that you can write in the Rails console, you can write any join whatever. And instead of hitting dot all to get the records or, you know, hitting enter to get back the relation object, you can type dot to SQL and you'll get back a string that will show you what this thing is going to do. So you don't actually have to go look at it in the log. You can actually say, if I were to run you, what would you do? Crazy little query. And it will give you back the insane little query. And this is, this is probably old news to everybody that's, you know, kept up with their art, unlike me. But if you're one of these, you know, crusty old Rails hackers that, you know, learned everything there was to learn in Rails 2 and then never checked in on the gang from Idaho, go, go check out the two-sequel method because it's freaking awesome. Yeah, I, I actually, I always forget about it because I think I, I use it a lot, but not like, not thinking that people don't necessarily know about it. Yeah. But it's, a, it's definitely a great little method. Mm-hmm. You mentioned some tools that can help you find common problems. Like I think probably one of the more famous ones in the area of what we've been talking about is the n plus one query. So, what's an n plus one query, and how how can we know if we have them? It's select n plus one from n's where <laughs> n equals less than one. I don't know. It's when you do a query instead of like you could do it as you could do one query where it's like collects all the records at once instead it does each one individually. So when you need a hundred records, you end up doing a hundred queries. Right. So like if you had your contacts and then their addresses or something like that in a associated table. So if you, you know, did a query to get your contacts, that's the one in the N plus one, the one query to get your contacts. But then as you're walking through the contacts, if you like each over all of their addresses to put them in a page, then each one of those, you end up having a query for every contact. 
because you end up, you know, going to get their addresses. And so that's the N plus one. If you have N contacts, a query per contact, and then the plus one that fetched the original list of contacts. And we do it a lot in Rails, I think, just because the syntax is so natural, I think. Like, you know, oh, I'll just each over these. And you don't think, oh, wait, is that another database query? Or, you know, and and luckily they're really easy to fix. But maybe you can tell us, Eileen, how, how do you find them? There's a gem called the bullet gem that helps you find them and lets you know when you should be adding, when you can use eager loading and reduce your n plus one queries. I haven't used it too much, but it's a very useful little gem. There's a, for not just n plus one queries, one of the gems that I've used a lot to find what query is slow when I'm like loading a page and I know something is destroying my memory, but I don't know what it is because there's so much on the page. I'll use Rack Mini Profiler, and that puts a little badge in your application that just records the query times from the database and tells you which ones are the slowest. That's awesome. Yeah, it's. I've used it a lot for when we have lots of data on a, a page, and I have no idea which ridiculous stats, amount of stats are, are slow, and uh, it's very, very helpful for that. And, of course, New Relic, that I'm sure everyone has heard of by now. New Relic is great for telling you, like, when something is going horribly wrong on your application, and then pointing you where to start looking, because it'll tell you what query is causing the server to slow down or why users are having slow load times or what is hogging the memory on your database. Yeah, it can be pretty awesome for seeing outliers, right? You've got like yep. this action that almost every time you execute it, it's like 0.02 seconds. And then every once in a while, it's like 13 seconds. <laughs> You're like, yep. wow, what's that? <laughs> We should probably mention, too, that Active Record can change some of these behaviors on you without you knowing. Like, one of my favorite cases is that eager loading. Active Record chooses between multiple strategies of eager loading. So, like, often if you do, you know, contact, eager load their addresses, often it will actually do that in two queries. One query to load the contacts and then one query to load all of the addresses, and then it'll sort it out in RubyLand, which belongs to what. But there's times if your where clause references one of the associated tables, that Active Record will switch strategies to loading them all in one giant query, where it has to basically specify the fields of both tables so that it can collapse it down to one record that comes back, and then in Ruby it can basically split them back apart as the two separate entities they are. It's kind of fascinating, but it can actually dramatically change performance characteristics. So you may just add one more field to a where clause, not realizing that you just totally switched query strategies, and now your query is going to be significantly different in performance. Yeah, it's a lot of weird things can happen with Active Record, especially when you start having relationships between models. And that's where you have to be really careful, because you can relate stuff in any way you want. And then this is kind of more advanced for this topic, but when you start getting into adding scopes onto your has many associations, things start to get really weird. Behaviors start to change, and there's quite a few open bugs in the Rails issues track related to those scopes. 
Not that they shouldn't be broken, but there's a lot of sharp edge cases, especially on a hasmany yeah. through with scopes for eager loading and stuff. There's a bit of advice in the old Pragmatic Programmers book. One of the rules of thumb that they give is never trust evil wizards. And <laughs> they define an evil wizard as a software wizard or something that does magic in the code that doesn't tell you what, you know, that you don't know what it's doing. It's, it's totally okay to use a wizard if you know what the wizard is doing. And this sounds like a really good example of a potentially very evil wizard, right? You're, you're doing it, you even inspect it, and you look at the two sequel and you go, oh, it's doing this, okay, this totally makes sense. And then you add something, and suddenly there's a principle of least surprise violation, because you expected it to continue to behave the way it did, and all of a sudden it, it didn't just add the column to your query, it, it completely changes the query. And yeah, this is a, this is a good case for maybe being in the habit of, like, when you see something weird, know where to look into active record, know where the console is, know where the two sequel is, and don't be afraid to go, go in and look at things that you are pretty sure haven't changed. Because if nothing has changed, then your server isn't really broken. And if you're at that console, something's broken on your server, right? So that's the dangerous part. And I think people criticize Active Record for this because it's too clever sometimes. It's got too much magic. And I have to give the, the Active Record guys a lot of props for putting in these inspection methods where they can basically say, look, I can do the magic trick. You know, you can stand behind me and watch my hands while I do the magic trick. Where, you know, like in Rails 2 and whatnot, it, it was sometimes it was kind of hard to find out what the magic was. And now it's a lot easier to, to check things. Yeah, I agree. How do we ensure, let's say that w when we're teaching new programmers, new Rails programmers even, doesn't even have to be like new programmers. When we're teaching people Rails, how do we get active record across and let them enjoy the power and flexibility of active record and manage to somehow give them enough tools that they don't shoot themselves and their database in the foot? I'm not sure, actually. I think that you don't... That That's a great answer. <laughs> I, th I think that newer programmers aren't going to hit these issues because, I mean, maybe they will, but it's not as likely that you would be the only developer thrown onto, like, some legacy project that's got tons of records that will crash your database. And, I don't know, I don't think that there's... I think this is the kind of thing where it's actually... If you're like... I think it's kind of fun to learn the hard way about <laughs> this kind of stuff. Because you can it. tell someone all the time, like, oh, don't, like, don't use find here, or don't use, you don't use each here because you're going to have a problem, but it's like, they're not going to recognize the problem or appreciate the problem until they've hit it themselves. Yeah, I think that's a great point. It's something you probably have to run into and see once, and then you're like, you understand. I, in Early in my web application building career, I had a thing that needed identifiers that basically came out of a fixed list. And I generated a big enough fixed list that I was sure we would never run out of them. And uh, as the site got more and more popular, I was just ridiculously wrong. And then so as it would start to get toward the end of that list, all of a sudden it started taking massive amounts of time to create these entries. And that was because it was running through trying to find an identifier that, that hadn't been used before. 
and uh, it just ate up all these time as the number of free identifiers got less and less. And yeah, it was great. I just destroyed the whole web application with some, you know, fixed array. It's great. Yeah, it's it's always fun to hunt down those issues too, because you don't necessarily know that they're coming from a lot of data, right? Until you've gone through all of your other options. But it can be a they can be fun little digging experiments. And, you know, in like a couple of years, all of these examples of how to get around active record might not exist anymore. You might have to find other ways. So right. I think that the takeaway to new developers should really just be pay attention to your SQL. And pay attention to your data, because assuming that, oh, this one record will delete each as fast as 10,000 records is not a good assumption. I think there maybe are a few things we can do in our favor, like... um one, I really like what you've been saying, Eileen, about just trying things in IRB, you know, so that you, and, you know, make sure you have the log statements hooked up so that they execute right there as they do in their Rails console. And, you know, that way you can watch the queries as they go. And then maybe when we're teaching, we don't just teach one way to read, you know, let's teach three ways to read a record. You know, or yeah. something like that. And then if you're playing with the different things and seeing the different statements that each of them create, then hopefully you can start to imagine, you know, the different scenarios. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I found really helpful has been just working at a lower level with SQL. With some of the stuff I've been doing, I've been been using the, the SQL library, which it has a model layer that I haven't really used yet, but mostly I've just been using it's like lower level gateway layer. And, and the cool thing about that is just most of the, the method, the calls that you make map one to one to the SQL that's generated. So there isn't really like a, a strategy issue where it's like you say one thing and it expands out to a huge amount of SQL. I mean, it's taking care of basic stuff like interpolating values in for you. But it's just, it's been really helpful to sort of build up the kind of queries I might have done an active record once manually and just seeing, you know, if I feel like I've come away with a better sense now, you know, when I do something in Active Record or in some library like Active Record, I sort of have a sense in the back of my mind of what's going to be necessary to accomplish that that I didn't really have before. And I'm curious if you've ever, like, fooled around using Active Record's even lower-level facilities. I mean, I guess we've been sort of talking about its, its lower-level facilities, but just, like, have you found it helpful just executing raw SQL or something close to raw SQL and to, as a way to get a better idea of what's required. Oh, yeah, definitely. There was, like, one time we had to do this crazy join, and in, in with the active record, we were like, we can't do this. We have to do it in SQL to figure out what the SQL should be first before we can do it, because it's, like, what it needed to do. Because of all the errors we were hitting in the SQL, where it was, like, no such column, or, like, you have an error in your statement, so we were like, okay, we have to take this out and go into SQL, figure out how to do the SQL part, then go back to Active Record. Plus one, your SQL recommendation. I've also played with it quite a bit lately, and, and I agree with you that it's when I'm not wanting to think about things in terms of objects and ORM layers, I find SQL a very natural way to mess around with the database. And it because it has that lower level and the way it works, it has a lot more of the niceties that Eileen's talk and stuff has kind of been wishing for. Uh, so, for example, in SQL, there is multi-insert, uh, which is basically batch insert. Right? Mm. So one question that I have is, you know, a lot of the stuff that 
that we're talking about, a lot of these optimizations that we're talking about, I think it's safe to say they involve a certain amount of understanding either of your data model or of your um, domain models. Uh, and what I mean by that is that, you know, a lot of these optimizations involve asserting, okay, I know what actually needs to go on here. Um, so I'm going to drop down to a lo lower level uh, and do something that's, that's more efficient. And like, if I know that I'm, I'm skipping callbacks, but I know that this model doesn't have any callbacks that I need to be worried about, or I'm going to, to handle that callback stuff separately myself. So that's sort of, you know, knowing things about the, the active re record models, you know, and, and some of these are also optimizations based on, I understand the underlying tables, but all these things are basically breaking the encapsulation a little bit, right? And so I'm curious, have you come up with any strategies for keeping these kinds of encapsulation breakages or, you know, lifting, lifting the lid, so to speak, you know, isolated, not like letting them spread throughout the code base? I don't know. You're talking to the wrong person because I'm not a fan of callbacks. <laughs> so <laughs> that, that, that my recommendation would be to not use callbacks so then you don't have a problem when you use delete all and wonder where, like, why your, stiff, nice. why your new callback didn't fire. <laughs> that's actually a great point, though, right? That's actually. So, like, yeah, that's a totally legit way of approaching it is, look, on this project, we don't use callbacks, and so we don't have to worry about it. Yeah. Or if you're going to add a callback, you need to do research into how the application is being used before you do that. And they should, I feel like they should only be added when, if there's really just no other way around it. I mean, we have callbacks in FishMe, but half the time I'm just like, I didn't know this was happening because it's happening silently. Right. Spooky action at a, at a distance. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, you know, I mean, I guess there are sometimes, there are things that you have to do sometimes, you know, there are things you delete. If you delete a bunch of data, you have to go and sometimes you have to update some references somewhere else. Or remove references somewhere else. And, um, you know, I guess you have to handle that somehow. Yeah. It's, that's kind of like a case by case basis where one of the, th one of the things where I had the batch insert I needed to, uh, there was a part in our application that needed to increment the counter. So I was like, well, I can't increment. I don't want to just use regular active record creates just because I need to increment a counter. That's a lot of time wasted. So what I did is I actually, as I was creating the array of records that needed to be inserted with the batch insert, I would increment the counter at the same time. So the counter would actually get updated before it inserted the records. Not that I would necessarily recommend doing that in your application per se, but there are ways around it where you can still use like the stuff that's in the callback without necessarily using the callback itself. So it's in the same part as your delete code or your insert code, and you can see it happening. And if you did that in a transaction, I would totally pass that in a code review. I would not right. Out and yeah, that. yeah, you could do that in in a transaction, of course. Yeah. Sometimes when I find myself needing to encapsulate a series of database steps, you know, involving a model or models, what I'll do is I'll just place a class method on that model. Then, you know, try to put the word out that the convention is that we handled this with that class method. I realize that's not foolproof and you can, you know, people can bypass that. But then when that leads to a problem, it's also a fairly easy fix where you just switch to calling the class method typically, you know, and I think that's one way you can kind of bundle the, the things that go together together. Yeah, it, there's a lot of it's about getting creative when you have problems. Even the things that examples I have won't work for everybody or every situation. But some of the takeaway of, of it should be don't 
like assume that active record is gonna help you, and that like sometimes you just need to like go spelunking in the active record documentation and find something that can help your specific situation, or send a pull request. <laughs> yeah, good call. One thing that occurred to me: most of this seems to be centered around uh, SQL and relational databases. If you're using Active Model, I-, I guess a lot of this may or may not apply depending on how you have it implemented, what which database you're working with, and what the limitations that are there. I haven't done this, these experiments with non-SQL databases. I'm not entirely sure what would happen. A lot of this comes out of like actual work that I'm doing. So because I don't have an application that has a NoSQL database or anything really other than MySQL, SQLite, or Postgres, I haven't really experimented with those, but it would be interesting to dive into that and see how it handles these same issues. I would say that all the databases I've worked with have some similar kinds of concerns. Like, for example, just to pick a popular one, uh, Redis. I think pretty much everybody who works with Redis any significant amount of time figures out, you know, at some point, don't call keys, <laughs> you know, like by itself, an unqualified keys, which is going to force it to walk all the keys, which is basically what we were saying about the dangers of all earlier, right? So mm-hmm. I think different databases, the specifics may change a little, but the overall thread, I think, still holds up. Yep. Awesome. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Avdi, do you want to start us off with the picks? Sure. Uh, I don't actually think I have any technological picks to, at least computer picks today, uh, but I got a couple of non-computer picks. Uh, one I was just thinking about the other day, and I thought that I picked it once, but I guess I haven't, uh, is the concept of a balance bike for teaching young children to ride their bike. I forget where I first ran across this, but the idea is that rather than giving them a bike with training wheels, you give them a bike without pedals, but otherwise it's just a regular two-wheel bike. And I did this by, like, getting a cheap little bike from Walmart and cutting off the uh, the chain and pulling the, the pedals off. And the idea behind it is that training wheels basically teach kids to steer wrong. Like, they, they don't teach them the right feel for, you know, banking to turn on yeah. a bike. So once you take the training wheels off, they sort of have to retrain. And I, I tried this idea out. Like I said, I, I just got a little bike and, and took the, the pedals off. So, so far, uh, with two young children, the result for both has been the full process of teaching them, like, how to balance on a bike has been giving them the balance bike and telling them to go have fun. Like, there really hasn't been a training process, per se, because they just, they get on it, you know, and they start walking it around just with their feet on the ground, and then they start to coast, you know, kick and coast for a few inches and then for a few feet. And before you know it, they're banking around on the driveway and you never had to do anything. And then once they get on, you know, then you get them a, a proper bike and uh, they already know how to control it and they're not like falling all over the place. Well, not as much anyway. So, so far, uh, two kids, it's worked beautifully both times. I'm uh, really impressed with this concept. And I will also pick my latest multi-tool. I recently got myself a uh, multi-tool to replace the, the old Leatherman that I've been carrying around for many, many years. And I uh, got the Leatherman Skeletool, which is just a beautiful little piece of hardware. It's a little smaller than my old one. It's got, like, all the tools that I regularly use and none of the ones I don't. So it's got, like, a 
It's got a blade, which is openable from the outside. You don't have to open the whole thing up. It's got pliers, wire cutters. It's got a screwdriver with a couple of different heads that you can plug in. And it's got a nice, big, hefty clip that also doubles as a proper bottle opener, not that nasty little little thing that you find on most most knives that you have to flip out and like make a couple of tries at the bottle cap before the darn thing actually comes off. And it's all like just like if you go look at a picture of it, it's all put together in this just gorgeously machined uh, aluminum package or stainless package. So I'm really happy with this thing. And I think that is it for me. Awesome. David, what are your picks? Well, I have a couple. Uh, actually, I have three because Nick Coranto just pinged me on Twitter and said, hey, any chance Nickel City Ruby could get a shout out on Ruby Rogues? And the answer is yes. So my other picks are... No! <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so nickelcityruby.com, they're open for registration right now. And I'm sorry, that's a really lousy pick, isn't it? Because I, I haven't been to Nick, Nickel City Ruby. I just know Nick Quantaro by association on Twitter. He and I have chatted, and he's cool, and I've heard good things about that conference. So yes, Nick, you can get a shout-out on our show just by tweeting at us in the middle of a recording. So, Okay, so I have two... Well, all my picks are YouTube but I've got some serious, heavy YouTubing, and then I've got some really lightweight fluff, not to detract from the heavy stuff, but just, you know, I, I felt like I couldn't I, I couldn't keep a, a good balance. So let me start with uh, some of the most important YouTubing you can do this week. If you haven't seen this, this is, by the time this goes up, this will have been going on now for three or four weeks, but Feminist Frequency has been running a secret series of videos called Tropes versus Women in Video Games. And she makes the point that women are used as back or as background decoration in video games and not just as background decoration, but or, or not just women, but actual violence against women. And when she starts picking video games, you start like as a man, like I'm watching this and I'm thinking Okay, but that's just one game. And then she picks another, and another, and another, and another, and another. And you realize it's in every stinking game out there. Games that don't even need, you know, edgy, sexy content have hypersexualized content, and it's always aimed at objectification of women. So she's done two parts. I believe she ran a Kickstarter to, to fund a multi-part series, uh, mini-series on it. I don't know... If there's a third part coming, I assume there is. And I want to say they're fantastic. They're not enjoyable to watch, but they are important to watch. And so I think that was some of the most important stuff I found on the Internet last week. And uh, I actually watched it before uh, last week's show, but I wanted to digest it and really process it before I picked it on the show. So Women as Background Decorations, Tropes versus Women in Video Games uh, by Feminist Frequency. That's my first pick. The second one is just some pure YouTube silliness, and that's a couple of guys named Rhett and Link. And these guys just goof off and sing beautifully, but they also sing hilarious songs. My particular favorites right now are The Breakup Song and My OCD. And if you want to know, like just in the middle of the song, they just say one of the things you can do to mess, mess with people with OCD. In the middle of the song, they just throw out Googling askew. And if you're listening near a computer right now, just open up Google and type in askew, A-S-K-E-W, and hit enter. And if you have OCD, your browser will hurt your brain right there in the web. So there you go. Um, I, I like the song pretty much just for that little Easter egg in it. And these guys also do a daily, I think it's daily, they do a video podcast called Good Mythical Morning. That's kind of fun and silly and stupid and uh 
it's just good, clean fun. A couple of Virginia boys goofing around and having a good time, and uh, I think it's uh, fun to watch them. So, and they're, they they sing well. Their fast food folk song is absolutely astonishing. Not because they do an entire song based off of the Taco Bell menu, but because they sing it live, and the guy on the other end actually gets the order right at the end of the song. That one's worth watching just on the merit of that alone. So, those are my picks. It's been a while since we've done a legendary, epic D. Brady pick, so there you go. That should scratch your itch for a while. All right, James, what are your picks? Well, first, I just feel like I need a plus one everybody else's. I, too, used a balance bike with my daughter, and we haven't moved her to the real bike stage yet. It's just four, but uh, like probably now would be a good time, actually. And I agree that it's pretty silly easy. You can get specific balance bikes. Just buy the thing called that if you want to, which is what we did. And uh, also, Tropes versus Women, absolutely excellent. Everybody should watch it. Um, super important. Okay, on to my own picks. I'm on a video kick, and I haven't had a pick explosion in a while, so here it goes. Dave Thomas gave a keynote at ElixirConf. It's really good. I love watching Dave Thomas speak, and he's always entertaining, but uh, what I love most is he usually makes me think about things in different ways, and this keynote is definitely one of those. He talks about what's been happening while he's been learning Elixir, and how is that changing, how... He thinks about programming and, and what kind of programs he's been writing and, and stuff like that. A very interesting, good brain stretching keynote. Another talk I saw recently was TDD, Where Did It All Go Wrong by Ian Cooper. And this was really good. It was kind of a TDD back to basic principles kind of thing and, and talking about what it means and how have we misinterpreted it in places. I, I usually don't enjoy talks like that too much but this one was really just like super practical and great at describing things and i thought it was really good uh, i think it may have actually been ofti that told me to go watch this talk so thanks ofti and then uh, another really short one that i saw recently and it's kind of on topic for what we uh talked about today code school has this series called feature focus and I've only watched one, the free one, for it, uh, but I really like this. They basically pick a feature in a Rails app, and this one, I don't know if that's always the case, but they were like, let's write a search, like Basecamp search. And they implement a reasonable solution of it and show you that in about, you know, 10 or 12 minutes or whatever. And then they go basically ask an expert, I, I guess, in this case, the expert was DHH, uh, creator of Basecamp. <laughs> and they go to DHH and they're like, here's how we did our search. What do you think? And uh, he gives them some feedback. You know, well, I like what you did here. I would do this a little different. And he talked about how, you know, they were kind of using these simple query methods, almost like fetching all the records from the database. And he's like, yeah, you're not going to get away for that with that for very long. It's probably, you know, you just need to use Elasticsearch or something. And anyways, cool feedback, neat series. It took like 20 minutes just to watch the episode, which is great. I love that it wasn't like five hours. So uh, super cool stuff. Those are tech talks for non-tech stuff. Videos. I recently watched all of the new Cosmos series, which is currently available for streaming Ooh, on yeah. Netflix. Oh my gosh, so good. I am a huge 
Science Nut. I watched the original Cosmos with Carl Sagan, and I still learn tons of stuff from it. And besides that, it's just freaking gorgeous. So... Plus, it's Neil freaking Tyson. Right, Neil deGrasse Tyson. I mean, like, this has basically everything going for it. It's amazing. 13 episodes, I think. Really good stuff. Uh, If you have a remote interest in anything science, you should watch this. It's so good. And then finally, one last pick. How do you get video on your TV? One way is Chromecast. I've been using recently. This is the little device from Google that's super cheap. You just plug it in. It's got about the easiest setup ever, and then you can stream things to your TV. It doesn't get much more ridiculously easy than that, at least in my case. My dad did have some problems with it at his house, and I think it has to do with distance to the router, and the Chromecast uses the 2.4 gigahertz frequency. Is that what it is? I can't remember. Anyways... Not the bigger five-point whatever. So he did have a few issues, so he didn't find it quite as painless as I did, but it's been pretty painless for me. And we found when we're programming together at my house, it's great just to be able to throw our screen up on the TV and, uh, you know, talk about the code on an HDTV and stuff. It's really nice. So those are all my picks with video. Sorry, there were so many. It's like a back-to-back D. Brady pick. <laughs> awesome. Very nice. I've got a few picks. I've been cleaning up my office, so I'm going to pick a couple of things I've probably picked on the show before in the past. Um, one of them is my ScanSnap 1300i, S1300i. It's a really small scanner with a little feeder on it. Anyway, I had this huge pile of papers that I needed to go through, and I got through them in a few hours, just scanned them into my machine. I can now sort them onto my on my computer. With my receipts, I actually have a scanning app. I don't remember what it's called, but I'll put it in the show notes. But, uh, yeah, so then I can snap a picture of receipts because the receipts don't always scan nicely with this thing. Most of them do, but sometimes it just won't read them, and I don't know why. And so, you know, I've got those picks. And then one other thing, I just went to a webinar on landing pages and stuff. So if you're putting out products and stuff, if you go to leadpages.net and sign up for their webinar, it is really good, and it kind of helps you figure some stuff out. So I highly recommend that, and those are my picks. Uh, Eileen, do you have some picks for us? One thing I've started using recently, it's called Journal, and it's a command line journal application that stores like your notes in a plain text file, but everything can be tagged and dated and encrypted, and you can have multiple journals and like save off whatever you want. So if like, you're already using the terminal, it's great, because then you don't, have to, you don't have to open another application to save notes on things. And my other pick is... Rails 4.2 beta is out, and anyone looking to make Rails contributions or their first contribution, they want help on documentation and testing and making Rails 4.2 super solid. So it'd be a great way to get your first Rails commit or just increase your Rails commits. Uh, Everybody on core and the contributors are super helpful, especially if you're like, hey, it's my first time. They'll be nice. Don't be scared. (laughs) Everybody's super awesome. And that's what I have. That's right. You can get some tender love. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) If anybody needs a reason to upgrade to Rails 4.2, I can give it to you in just one method call. Pluck. Pluck came in in before Rails 2. Well, no. Pluck takes a single argument in Rails 3. Uh In Rails 
And the first time you use pluck to get a customer's last name, you think, man, I wish I could do pluck last name comma first name and get back an array of arrays. It's just obvious. It's the obvious intuitive extension. And it's not there in Rails 3. And it is there in Rails 4. So, up, you know, come for the 4.0-ishness, but stay for the pluck. That's that's why you should upgrade. Yeah, plus you get adequate record and my sped up delete all. Sweet! Awesome. A bunch you've of other. Got, you've stuff. got code in Rails 4? I have a commit bit. Awesome! That's yep, awesome. Uh, actually, uh, Tenderlove has helped me tremendously in showing me the way around active record. Well, good, because that guy's been do. of marginal value until now, you know? <laughs> no kidding, right? <laughs> when is he going to do something, you know? <laughs> right? Cool. Well, uh, we'll go ahead and wrap up the show. I do want to remind everybody that we're reading Refactoring Ruby Edition. We'll be talking to Martin Fowler here in a few weeks. And uh, so go pick up the book. And other than that, I guess we're done. So we'll wrap it up. We'll catch you all next week. A special thanks to HoneyBadger.io for sponsoring Ruby Rogues. They do exception monitoring, uptime, and performance metrics and are an active part of the Ruby community. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team, and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. Where can you learn from designers at Amazon and Quora, developers at SoundCloud and Heroku, and entrepreneurs like Patrick Ambron from Brand Yourself? You can level up your design, dev, and promotion skills at Level Up Con, taking place October 8th and 9th in downtown Saratoga Springs, New York. Only two hours by train from New York City, this is the perfect place to enjoy early fall at Oktoberfest while you mingle with industry pioneers in a resort town in upstate New York. Get your ticket today at levelupcon.com. Space is extremely limited for this premium conference experience. Don't delay. Check out levelupcon.com now. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the rogues and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a forum that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at rubyrogues.com slash parlay.